The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. It's National Insider Threat Awareness Month. And if you're not familiar with what National Insider Threat Awareness Month is, it is a month dedicated to providing news and information about insider risk and the insider threat launched in 2019. We see a lot of initiatives and updates and content coming out. Today, I am very thrilled to be talking with Andrew Rasmuski. He is the principal at Canda Solutions. Canda has a lot of innovative tools and resources to work across the personnel vetting and risk management process. Fresh Haystack, one of those solutions. Um, He's here to talk a little bit about insider threat, insider risk, and the role that Canda Solutions can play in helping your organization or agency with that. Um, So thank you so much, Andrew, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Lindsay. Yes, and I love it. You've been around this space for a while, and it's great to have these relationships that come up and folks who are really committed to working in this space. And it's been great to see Canda Solutions, Fresh Haystack, kind of involved in this process. So what is kind of your role in this whole big issue of insider threat, insider risk? Sure. We actually, you know, like everything in life, started the serendipity actually working first time on risk and threat assessment in 2005 for TSA post-September 11th. As you know, DHS was formed. And we started, obviously, kind of in personal security domain. But as we grew Fresh Haystack, as you kindly mentioned, we understood that it's Personal security domain certainly has connections to human resource systems, uh, to investigations, to vetting, continuous vetting nowadays. And we kind of expanded this platform to cover multiple areas. And that's what really Fresh Haystack does, right? It's a case management platform. And we understood that building ERP or customizing big ERP systems for federal government certainly is a good services business, but reality is there were very few typically homegrown or customized systems which did not really answer the mail. So we kind of built our own. Fantastic. So you mentioned kind of a lot of what's going on in kind of the landscape here. Do you think that most companies or agencies realize the importance of this employee vetting and continuous monitoring mission? Sure. Most companies probably, you know, which are close to the national security, like defense industrial base, obviously, as government organizations do probably understand that. And again, cases, you know, from Snowden to Adam Hassan and others, right, kind of, uh, I think there is a public awareness, certainly bigger than it was probably 10 years ago. Some of the reasons and context which probably drive this understanding would be something like regulatory compliance, for example, right? Many industries or highly regulated industries mandate through background checks or continuous vetting. 
many financial institutions used to do that and background checks for cashiers, etc. So there are definitely some industries which are more familiar than others. Obviously, data breaches and cybersecurity certainly is a huge area which many organizations today pay attention to. Rise of cyber attacks and high-profile data breaches, we, we can name many of them. Obviously, driving this understanding that, you know, there is certainly external threat like cyber and hacking, etc., but also insiders could certainly pose a threat for organization and how important it is, you know, to protect crown jewels of or intellectual property for anybody really, not even in defense industrial base. Then reputation management, right, certainly is a consideration for many organizations, right? Nobody wants to be on the first page of Washington Post, right? Companies are increasingly aware how employee actions, both, right, past and present, can reflect on how organizations look. Then certainly evolution of vetting technology, right? I mean, 10 years ago, I know you've been around this space for a long time. Really, first time when we heard continuous vetting, this was pretty foreign concept, right? But today, it's certainly in sectors like defense, government, and critical infrastructure, um, everybody understands how crucial it is, right? And certainly some defense industrial-based organizations thinking that certainly it's probably more on government rather than on them. But again, there are different views of this. Yeah, I, you almost called me old, Andrew. I'm going to let it slide this time. But I have been around a while and seen this. And, and I think that... Yeah, I just said in this space, Lindsay, we are good. <laughs> I, mean, I, I appreciate that because there is some, you know, I think there is something about building on the knowledge that you have over time and seeing how these risks are not necessarily something new, but there are a lot of new solutions to address them. I do love a, a nice origin story. And you kind of already mentioned this in, in the response to my first question, but I, I did want to talk a little bit about kind of how did you get involved in this personnel security vetting mission and what's kind of prompted you to create some of the solutions that you have? Sure. So first, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, first we did actually for a few government agencies, starting with CSA, we got involved into personal security solutions and we built it obviously on first solution we ever built was on Oracle eBusiness Suite, which is like a huge ERP system. And again, problem with using these solutions, which are not specific for this domain, is that it takes you two, three years to actually build something, right? And by the time you are actually done, probably requirements are out of date, right? So you need to rebuild it. And again, idea was that, hey, as a services business, this is probably interesting and good, but we got to come up with something which is specifically risk-focused. And that's what we did. It took us about, you know, two, three years to build fresh that kind of very first versions and we understood it that from personal security domain it's crucial to have an automated and integrated solution where possible so we build basically industry benchmark workflows now pretty much for any government agency if you are a defense industrial based contractor we automate whole process of onboarding cleared candidate and we know how crucial and timely that could be for any organization and really cutting significant onboarding time, sometimes up to two-thirds of the onboarding cycle, which is huge for defense contractors, right? So that was kind of thing. And first thing, then we understood that, again, as you onboarded someone back to continuous vetting and insider threat, you definitely want to monitor that 
know whoever that person is, right? So we added kind of inside the thread solutions. We added our own AI, which we call AI Ride Risk Integration and Decision Engine, kind of which allows us to integrate multiple data sources, internal and external cyber physical security, and have full holistic risk view of that that particular individual, right? Depends on the position sensitivity, etc. And then we kind of expanded that. Hey, 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 and if we found something, right? What else? might be needed in the same platform and one of the things kind of which was huge in our opinion was kind of bringing data together but also allowing to investigate potentially that case right and have full audit trail of what happened where we learned information and we time what actions we took etc so this is kind of in a nutshell short overview of franchise thing. Amazing. And I love that you have that holistic approach. I think that's, you know, something that we've talked about before that you've written about that integrated risk management, which is really key. So looking at threats from both inside and outside of the organization, did you want to speak to that a little bit more? Sure. Integrated risk management, certainly in our opinion, is the key. And one of the kind of, I think it's interesting and pretty cool, I'll brag a little, you know, that Gartner actually, who looks at the global solutions in multiple kind of IT technology, actually mentioned us in their market guide in 2022 in Inside the Risk. And part of the things which they liked, in our opinion, kind of was this view that we look at HR, we look at the various sections, we look at the personal security, we look at the data outside, right? Using data source providers like LexisNexis or Thomson Reuters or many others, which I'm sure our audience knows exist on the market, right? And in order to understand which insider threats are really real, right? How we can understand full landscape and crucial to response or to insider threat, right? Not every case, obviously, is an insider threat, but improving response time with holistic risk view gives organization a capability to more quickly identify the source, right? Or breach or threat, right? Because I'm kind of always joke about this, right? It could be a DBA on Saturday morning doing something at 6 a.m. downloading terabytes of data. Is it really an insider threat action or it's a production database or production migration, which is happening over a weekend, right? So you got to look at it in the context. And more context you have, the better understanding of that individual you're going to get. And then I think another kind of critical and important thing is kind of obviously ethical and privacy consideration, legal compliance reasons, right? All of that should be included. I love that. You can always tell in these calls when you're talking to somebody who's highly technical. So let's just hope Andrew doesn't realize how completely untechnical I am. But that does tie into my next question. Sometimes you see kind of these insider threat topics put into boxes where it's like a personnel solution. It's like every time we have a big breach, somebody wants to find somebody to blame and they either want to blame like the personnel vetting process. So some background investigator did the wrong job or hey, it's the technology, the technology solution wasn't, you know, wasn't sufficient. Why, when it comes to insider threat, is it a both and problem? How do we address that? Sure. Insider threat topic, obviously, certainly touching personal personal solutions, right? I mean, certainly personal security, nobody becomes insider before that person was hired, right? So certainly they went through the personal solution. Many organizations not necessarily treat them as connected. And I think for the life or employee life cycle, 
you have to kind of, in my opinion, you know, kind of connect these data sources and always kind of communicate. Now, not all technology solutions certainly can accomplish that. But we, for example, we always knew that HR data during hiring background check, you know, and all other things, knowing about that individual a paint critical picture, right? So personal solutions have, you know, certain elements like training and awareness, psychological analysis, clearance and access, potentially, you know, what are the whistleblower policies. Now, technological solutions, you know, people don't look uh, typically, you know, uh, in insider threat model, some people look at the cyber data, what's happening uh, online, but very few organizations except government CV programs really look at what's happening outside outside of the organization, which is critical. Unless you bring all of this data in the context, you really not going to see a full picture back to holistic kind of uh, risk. To me, this is the key, right? Personal solution offers insights into motivations and potential triggers for insider threats. In order to address it, you need an energetic approach, right? You need to bring both solutions together and only leveraging strengths of both you can really have a robust defense. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. And I think a lot of the things you've talked about are certainly super interesting, super relevant, can do a lot to improve this onboarding process for candidates, which I love. One of the things that we've talked about before is this kind of this idea of clearability and almost how you can get a decent idea just on publicly available information about what some of the risk factors a person has coming on board of the system, what their chances of getting a clearance are. But I find it kind of interesting We're all super accustomed to the idea of a credit score and are used to that being used to cross a variety of financial decisions. When you talk to somebody about a security clearance scoring or their ability to get vetted through that process, it can kind of seem a little bit minority report. Like, hey, is this as an employer, do I want to do kind of that employment pre-screening? What would that look like as a candidate? Do I want to sign off on this? Can you speak to that a little bit and some of the thought process around that? Sure, absolutely. We we use actually a simpler version, again, back to the tool and franchise that kind of green, yellow, red, to look uh, in more kind of from predictive analytics standpoint, right? How long it's going to take you to onboard that candidate. So certainly a little bit different view than credit score, right? But if we go back to scoring, right, and risk score or risk determination, or is it a trust determination, right? You kind of kind of can look at this in multiple ways. I think concept of credit score certainly is widely accepted, right? Because it's measured based on the kind of concrete financial behaviors and actions, which is, you know, debt levels, payment history, credit inquiries, right? Financial institutions been using this for um, for uh, to just really assess the risk of lending money or providing credit to individuals. On the other hand, a personal vetting or security score might seem a little bit sci-fi, as you said, but I think reality is like you got to look at the predictive nature of it based on the previous uh, information or predicting crimes before they occur. Right, security score if to predict one's potential for malicious activity would probably appear to make some assumptions, right, about future action based on the past or present data. So obviously there are huge privacy concerns, collecting on information, and you obviously need consent of the uh, individual, or in this case, employee, if it's employee, then there is potential for misjudgment, right? Kind of who who is watching the watchers, right? So there is a potential to misjudge and oversimplify intent. That certainly could happen as well. So 
that's why kind of some interesting technologies like machine learning, etc., which we kind of also are using to analyze potential data which we receive helps us to learn and not make the same mistake twice, right? Which not always necessarily case with the person. And then there is also stigmatization issue based on low security score. Again, I think certainly it's a measurement, but you have to be careful how accurate and fair that measurement is, right? And kind of constantly keep track and improve. So certainly credit score offers a relatively straightforward measure of financial risk, but I think security and risk score where metrics are very well defined, clear, and understandable, right? How that score is achieved certainly could help to understand the risk of that individual. I love you brought up a lot of important pieces there of of saying we have so much that we can do with data, with the technology that we have, but we also have key accountability constraints around it. And that's why you need the process, but you need the people around it to help kind of set the parameters to look into these things. Is there anything I didn't ask about that you wanted me to touch on today? No, no, Lindsay, always pleasure talking with you. And I hope, you know, if anyone wants to reach out and get more information, we will be happy to respond. Andrew at CandaSolutions.com. Yeah, so thank you so much again, CandaSolutions, for being on the show. Appreciate your time and appreciate your providing this information. I'm encouraged in this space as someone who's worked here a long time because we do have a lot of risks, but we have a lot of great innovative companies, innovative people like Andrew who are addressing those problems. And I actually get excited, even though I have no idea what you're talking about half the time, Andrew. No, I understand a little bit about what you're talking about. Just because there is a lot going on in this process, there are, again, a lot of tools to apply. And like you say, a lot of ways for even very small companies that are involved in this process up to the largest, biggest companies. I think punting the solution off and assuming that either the federal government can solve it on their own or that private industry is going to solve it on their own is not the solution. So all the ways that we can kind of come together around these topics and bring different groups together are really going to help us to actually address this big topic of insider risk. So thank you so much, Andrew, for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Join the Homeland Security Experts Group for the third annual Homeland Security Enterprise Forum, October 9th and 10th at the Omni Shoreham Hotel. HF23 will focus on advancing the enterprise through the adoption of current and emerging technology to make America more secure and prosperous. HCEF is attended by senior government officials, private sector executives, and thought leaders from across the nation. More information and registration are available at www.hsenterpriseforum.org. This is Sean Bigley and Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com, and we're talking this segment about another new proposal to legalize weed for feds. Lindy, I don't know about you, but I feel like every year for the last five or six years, I see this at least once. Am I totally going crazy here? Is it, This seems like it's reincarnated every year. Every year. Yeah. I think there's just enough lobbying elements out there. People that are pushed, the legislation is going to get reintroduced and it comes like with different various nuances around it. But what I always feel is like it's really kind of doesn't address the broader issue, which is that marijuana remains illegal at the federal level. So they've tried to kind of splice and dice it different ways. You know, even from a policy perspective, right, the intelligence community has done this through ODNI releasing clarifying guidance around drug use. But again, a lot of the legislation, I think, is trying to chip away at it, trying to change the prohibitions around how pre-employment marijuana use is considered. But all of those really feel like stopgaps for saying like, hey, we need to address this more broadly at the federal level in terms of the legality of it with all the states that are making it legal. That's just 
the bigger issue that we have. And until federal law changes, but these one-off policies, I would not consider myself covered. And that's what I frequently say. Like, even if you see some announcement or read some article that says, oh, employment law has changed, like, I would still make sure I was very carefully guarding what the agency I'm applying for requires. Otherwise, I still might find myself in a situation where I have used drugs even in the past, and it could be an employment or an application issue. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to clarify for people because when I read some of this stuff, you know, these news releases and things like that, it kind of implies like the law is being changed. And it's it's really, it's an attempt. It's a hope to change it just because you know, a member of Congress introduces a bill doesn't mean it's going to get passed. Obviously, we all kind of think back to Schoolhouse Rock, which my kids are uh, going through now or a bill on Capitol Hill. And, you know, that whole little thing that brings back memories of fourth grade. You know, that's the reality. It is 400 and some odd members of Congress. They all introduce a flurry of bills every year and only a handful of them actually make it into law. This strikes me as another one of those that's destined for the the dustbin. You know, you mentioned states and I, I did a little bit of digging and it turns out as of our recording date, there are 30 eight states that have legalized marijuana for medicinal purposes. 23 have legalized it for recreational purposes. And so when I was in law practice defending government employees and contractors in security clearance denial cases, oftentimes they would come to me very you know, angry and, and indignant and say, I don't understand how I'm being denied. I use this, it's legal in my state, what's the problem? And I would have to explain to them essentially what you were just alluding to, which is that it doesn't matter, it's still illegal federally, whether or not the federal government enforces that criminally is a whole other ball of wax. Spoiler alert, they don't really, or at least they, they haven't for many years. You know, when it comes to employment, that's totally different. And they are still very, very aggressive on this issue. I actually fielded a number of media questions when President Biden came into office about how is this going to be a sea change? It sounds like he's loosening restrictions for federal employees. And I had to say, no, actually, that's not the case. There was a lot of confusion about this policy memorandum that came out from the director of the Office of Personnel Management that was kind of instructing agencies to be a little bit more lenient when it came to past marijuana use. But from a security clearance standpoint, that had really no bearing at all. And so there's this this kind of two layers to the hiring process, both for contractors and for federal employees of suitability or contractor fitness, it's sometimes called, and security clearance. And just because the reins have been loosened on one doesn't automatically mean the other. One thing, though, that I actually thought was kind of a little weird or a little entertaining, I looked up the press release from this Cure Act bill that was put out, co-sponsored by Representatives Raskin and Mace. The one that Raskin put out had a quote in it from somebody from the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a a pro-marijuana industry group. The quote is, DPA is excited to support legislation that can help end another pillar of the drug war and allow individuals to secure work. Penalizing someone for drug use relies on an assumption that any drug use is problematic and that people who use drugs cannot be responsible employees. We know this is false. I was sort of perplexed when I read that because I thought, 
I think most people hear drug users and that's exactly what they think is irresponsible. <laughs> so I don't know that we're really doing a good job of selling this guys. Like if that's the goal, I, I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, I do think there is this movement to say, Hey, what is the difference between drug use and alcohol consumption? And I do think that's where they have kind of their biggest argument and saying like, Hey, if we're looking at this as a, as a user perspective, are we just penalizing people who maybe use marijuana or use different drug substances in a different way that is the way it has been i mean you talk about like it's i don't think you reduce kind of that the stigma of that over time and i do think there is something that needs to shift and maybe seeing positive benefits of marijuana use for a medicinal purpose i feel like there, there have been inroads made in that arena at least in some senses within especially the dod community around family members like i have seen positive examples of cases through doha or individuals who have had a family member who was using marijuana for medicinal use, cancer, you know, some form of treatment. And as a therapeutic, I'm, I have to say, I would be in favor of that. And I'm like, I appreciate that there is enough policy nuance to say, hey, if your family member is using that as a part of a treatment plan, we'll allow for that. But obviously, then it gets very squishy in terms of the crossover for the security clearance holder applicant themselves. This is how I know I'm getting old, Sean. We, we talked about my age a lot the last time we recorded. It's coming back because I feel a little bit more in the gray area of this too, which is when you have people on the extremes that say, hey, no drug use should be stigmatized. And you have the people on the other side, like we have this in my state of Nebraska right now. Nebraska is like hardline, no drugs. We don't do drugs in Nebraska. It's not what we're about here. Very different than your California. And there's just been a huge push to get medicinal marijuana legalized. And they have just said very staunchly, no. And a, and a big push has been like, there is no medicinal use of marijuana. And then I push back on that. Like, why do we have all of these extremes around it? Especially those poor Nebraskans, because Colorado's right next door and it's pretty much the wild, wild west over there. So it is a tough issue around like the black and white of it, right? And that's why I feel like, unfortunately, the legislation that I see only makes things more squishy because it's just kind of moving the needle a little bit on saying, how are we considering this in the employment process, which until we actually do something at the federal level and change that, then all of this is pretty irrelevant. And if I was a security clearance holder applicant, I would still be touting the just say no line. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, the other piece of this, I mean, obviously, this particular act is written in a way that is trying to target this specific issue of security clearances and federal employees with marijuana use. Let's just say in the abstract that marijuana gets delisted from the controlled substances schedule or it get you know legalized federally essentially. You still then have this other issue of potentially federal agencies saying, well that's nice that it's legal, but we still consider it to be a mind altering substance vis-a-vis alcohol in excess or sniffing glue in a bag or whatever. And so if that's the case, then we're not going to allow it. And so, and you know, a great example of this is the CBD sort of drama that we've seen recently where it was legalized federally up to a certain concentration and then DOD for uh, military members uh, and DHS for the Coast Guard immediately turned around and said, we're still making this a violation of the UCMJ to use it at all, even if it's federally legal. And so I'm just not confident or convinced, I guess, that even if marijuana was legalized federally, that people in the personnel security community wouldn't find some way to sort of push back on that and, you know, end run around the legislation vis-a-vis some, you know, administrative rulemaking or, or something like that. So 
I agree with you. The bottom line, I think, is, you know, I wouldn't get too excited about these announcements. If you're, you know, seeing these things and you're a federal employee or you're a contractor or you want to be, I would take them all with a grain of salt because I don't see this changing anytime soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.